Fusion, the international science radio show. We have a bouncer and the doors of perception. The good, the bad, the ugly. It gets pretty exciting. The myths, the truths. Toxicology. Astro seismology. Magnetism. The dark side. Genetically engineered potatoes. Planetoid. Planetoid. I love that word. <laughs> <laughs> Hello and welcome to Diffusion. Sit back and relax while we profile your brain with weird and wonderful science. I'm Ian Wolfe. On this edition, the last of the series where Professor Mark Andreevic deep dives into the issues of face recognition and the COVID Safe app. Here's news of elimination, immunity, and recognition. Zealand eliminates the curve. Two days after the last person diagnosed as suffering from COVID-19 in New Zealand was declared recovered and released from isolation, and 17 days since the last new COVID-19 case, Prime Minister Jacinta Ardern announced that from midnight Monday June 8th, New Zealand would be released from all pandemic restrictions. Even social distancing and large gatherings, except for the need to have its borders closed. Quoting expert modelling, Prime Minister Ardern has declared New Zealand is COVID-19 free, for now, acknowledging that it will require constant vigilance to maintain, and that at some point, some new cases will appear, because of the nature of the virus. What's your immediate reaction when you heard there were no active cases of COVID-19 remaining in New Zealand? Um... I, I did a little dance. <laughs> Definitely not. Um, I showed Neve. She was caught a little by surprise, but um, she joined in, having absolutely no idea why I was dancing around the lounge, but enjoying it nonetheless. Only New Zealanders and their families are allowed to enter New Zealand at present, and they must stay in government-run quarantine for two weeks after they arrive. New arrivals will be tested twice within the two-week quarantine. People working on the border, at docks and airports, will also be tested. New Zealand's good news will be an interesting test for the presence of people who are carriers of the SARS-CoV-2 virus, but don't ever suffer symptoms. Asymptomatic cases. New Zealand has identified everyone with symptoms and waited for them to recover. But what about the asymptomatic cases? We don't know how long people can be without symptoms while testing positive to SARS-CoV-2 and still be infectious. Some people suffering COVID-19 symptoms have been sick for several months. A Chinese study of 78 people who tested positive for SARS-CoV-2 who'd been in contact with COVID-19 patients in a Wuhan hospital or attended the Hunan seafood market found that 42% of them were without any symptoms. An Australian study of 217 passengers of an isolated Antarctic cruise ship from Argentina found that of the 128 people who tested positive for coronavirus, 81% of those people had no symptoms. Some elderly passengers who tested positive returned to Australia to isolate and they never developed any symptoms, they stayed healthy. If we can understand why people thought to be at risk 
never develop symptoms while testing positive, it may help with developing a COVID-19 treatment. In Iceland, they tested a random sample of 17,900 people and found that although only 1% of them tested positive to the SARS-CoV-2 virus, 50% of those positive testing people were without any symptoms at all. In the USA, in King County, Washington, 23 people tested positive in a nursing home. 10 of those people had symptoms of COVID-19. 10 more went on to develop the symptoms. But three elderly people never developed any symptoms. There are many other papers on this phenomenon that are still awaiting peer review. No public health programs around the world seem to have taken these 40-80% to of infectious people into account. The only way to detect them is a random testing of members of the public. There may be four times as many asymptomatic carriers going around spreading infection for every identified case of COVID-19 who isolates. We wouldn't know. Because outside of Iceland, we only test people who show symptoms. So, when I hear the hopeful Australian figures of new cases state by state every day, I can't help but hope they find a budget to test random samples of the population to find out the rate of asymptomatic carriers of the SARS-CoV-2 virus. In New Zealand, as people hug and sing together and celebrate the end of social distancing, public health experts are recommending that people wear masks on public transport, on aircraft and at docks and airports. The World Health Organisation has finally recommended everyone should wear a mask, especially on public transport and in crowded indoor spaces like shopping malls and supermarkets. But Australian health authorities just aren't listening. Police immunity? There were Black Lives Matter protest marches held around Australia last weekend. The New South Wales Premier Gladys Berejiklian and New South Wales Police and the Police Minister tried to prevent the protest, claiming a concern for the spread of COVID-19. It was a public health matter. This is just after the Premier has lifted most pandemic restrictions in the state, opening pubs, restaurants and travel. Only the weekend before, there was a mostly white right-wing protest against the lockdown restrictions by people unhappy they couldn't get a haircut, and who believed that the coronavirus was caused by Bill Gates and 5G phone towers. None of these protesters socially distanced, and none of them were wearing masks, and none of them were fined or arrested. The Prime Minister announced that the right-wing protesters were free to protest and ignore social distancing if they chose, because it's a free country. Premier Berejiklian has boasted of how few COVID-19 cases New South Wales has now and how safe it is for people to crowd into football stands. The authorities took the Black Lives Matter protest organisers to court and won, making the protest illegal in New South Wales so as to prevent protesters spreading coronavirus. The New South Wales police dressed in riot gear and promised to arrest all protesters. However, Later that day, the Court of Appeals ruled the protest was legal, barely within minutes of tens of thousands of people gathering at Sydney Town Hall. Federal Minister for Finance Matthias Cormann 
said the protesters were selfish for endangering public health. But he was silent on the right-wing protesters of the previous week. The Black Lives Matter protests were peaceful. Everyone socially distanced despite the numbers, and everyone wore masks, with a notable exception. The police, who were so concerned about the spread of COVID-19 that they had to stop the protest in court, did not practice social distancing and did not wear masks. At the end of the day, after the protest when people were trying to go home, the police herded a group of distanced, masked protesters into the Eddy Avenue entrance to Central Station, forcing them to be close to each other, where another line of riot police was waiting to stop them entering the station. The protesters were trapped between two lines of police. This is Kettling, where police make sure that their victims can't run away. Two police attacked a disabled woman, taking her crutches, while a third, caught on camera, grabbed her throat and pepper sprayed right in her face. Police attacked other protesters with shoves, grabs and pepper spray, all caught on video, before finally allowing people to escape to the trains or out of the station. Police claiming to be concerned about public health in a respiratory disease pandemic failed to wear masks, forced people to be close together, and then without provocation, sprayed an irritant at people's faces that causes damage and can make them more susceptible to catching coronavirus. Despite the police claim that they needed to attack people to prevent violence, supported by the police minister, they were only able to arrest one man for the alleged crime of resisting arrest. The police minister has defended the assaults by police as he has defended every single crime committed by police, without exception. Just days earlier, the police minister defended the policeman who slammed a 16-year-old boy's face into concrete last week. Without any shame, the New South Wales police minister said the officer who assaulted the boy was just having a bad day. You wouldn't want to meet him on a good day. Premier Berejiklian has gone further, promising to outlaw protests in New South Wales altogether so she can't be overruled on human rights by the court. The New South Wales Health Minister has joined in by announcing that anyone who attended the protest should self-isolate for two weeks, out of consideration for others. However, he failed to make the same pronouncement to the riot police. According to the New South Wales Police Minister, the New South Wales Police don't just have impunity from being prosecuted for police brutality, they are somehow immune from COVID-19 as well. Surely the riot police should all isolate for two weeks as well? The Premier has taken a final swipe at her political opponents by declaring that if there is an outbreak of coronavirus in a few weeks, it won't be because her government encouraged people to tour around the state, attend crowded football matches, go to pubs and restaurants and crowd on trains, but because some people of conscience dared to protest against police brutality and the lack of justice for black deaths in custody. Supermarket face-off. The Woolworth supermarket chain has surprised people using the self-serve checkout in some Sydney and Melbourne stores by putting a small square in the corner with a live camera feed of the customer's face as they pay for their groceries. 
People are wondering just how long Woolworths has been photographing and videoing people's faces without consent, and what they're doing with this biometric data. Woolworths says the surveillance is a new security measure aimed at cracking down on those doing the wrong thing while shopping. By which we can only guess they mean people who don't scan and pay for all their groceries. Shoplifters. Woolworths promises that they don't record the video. However, the images are completely useless for cracking down on thieves unless you can call them up later to show who stole the groceries. Woolworths also says they aren't being monitored. Yet somehow, they also claim that they're a warning to staff about shoplifters. Coles in Melbourne is also recording and displaying people's faces. It's bad enough that the supermarket chains are invading our privacy and recording our faces without them also lying about what they do with the images. There's not much regulation of this technology in Australia, especially the databases, and there's a danger you could see yourself banned from some stores that you've never shopped in because your face is flagged as a subject of interest on a commercial database. People who aren't white and aren't male are wrongly identified as subjects of interest at much higher rates than white men. Nobody has said if any of the supermarket face surveillance systems are coping with the people who now wear masks or marking them as suspicious. How often are you asked to show the contents of your bags at shops? You're listening to Ian Wolfe on Diffusion Science Radio. Send emails to science at diffusionradio.com. We're brought to you across Australia on the Community Radio Network and podcast over the internet on www.diffusionradio.com. In countless ways, directly and indirectly, COVID safe serves the nation and its citizens, plays a vital role in helping every American to achieve a better way of life enables or helps him to enjoy healthful recreation, have well-trained, obedient pets, make friends, have leisure time for travel, grow bigger crops, get real smoking satisfaction, strengthen our national defense. Keep romance from fading away. Enjoy smoother shades. Live in a more comfortable home. Take off ugly fat. Achieve success. Thus the COVID safe story. Face recognition, the final part, with Professor Mark Andreevich from the School of Media, Film and Journalism at Monash University. I spoke to him by Skype, and I completed the interview by asking him about the COVID Safe app being sold to the public by the government as personal protection against catching coronavirus. You know, downloading the app is like putting on sunscreen to go out into the sun. It, it gives us protection as a nation. It protects you, it protects your family, it protects your loved ones, it protects our health workers, um, and it protects your job. <laughs> 
and the jobs of many others because it enables us to move forward uh, and to get the economy back on, on the track we want it to be on. What do you think of the government using terms to sell the app, like a digital vaccine or a digital sunscreen? Huh. Well, I think I understand the general sense of that, which is this is a form of, of protection for yourself. And in the case of vaccine, also assisting in protecting the community. I think we should be careful about suggesting that the app itself has any direct health benefits. So, so I understand the desire to be able to get public buy-in, but I think it's going to be important not to overpromise in ways that have the potential to backfire. And it's probably enough to say, you know, look, this is this is a technology that can be useful in assisting a concerted response to what's taking place. And it's it's going to be important not to overstep the, the type of promise that gets associated with promoting the use of the app. And the app's also already broken its own privacy policy by storing its data on Amazon web servers, which, although they're physically in Australia, are under American jurisdiction. So the American government, under the Cloud Act, has full access to all the data. Should that give people a bit of pause? I don't know the legal ins and outs of that. I've, I've seen some back and forth on that. If, if they didn't use... Amazon, there would, of course, be questions about the security of, of government databases, given some of the past <laughs> issues with government databases. So the question, you know, the question is, where would it be most secure? AWS, you know, Amazon is, you know, all of these companies, they do develop very secure protocols, but everything's hackable. I think the real question comes down to uh, a kind of sense of people who are installing the app, you know, what do they think about that? You know, they have the option when they're asked to share the data about their willingness to share it. And, you know, they should take into consideration the possible concerns that you've suggested about where the data is stored and what that means in terms of, of U.S. access. And whether or not they think they've got any concern about that and consider that in relationship to what they think the role of the app could be in potentially assisting in managing the virus. So in the great scheme of, yeah, I, I, I guess I, I, I don't I don't know for sure. I, I don't know what level of demand the U.S. government would have to initiate in order to be able to have access to that. Somebody with more legal expertise than I is, would need to speak to that. I thought um, it was an interesting coincidence yeah. that the UK government also chose Amazon Web Servers and they're admitting that they're also going to give it to their spy agency, GCHQ. Oh, they're going to give the contact tracing data to, to the GCHQ. GCHQ? Yes. Huh. Why? <laughs> because, they they why? because they want because, it. Because getting a list, getting your social graph just like they would like to get off Facebook, getting your, your link of all the people that you're physically near over a 21-day or... Right. In, in UK, it's over 28 days, is very useful to yep. spy agencies. They love knowing who all your colleagues and friends and who you associate with is. That's their main interest. Yeah, well, I, I don't know what the metadata laws are in, in the UK, but given the metadata laws in Australia, is already. I, I'm not sure they need the the COVID app to get it. In other words, if, if they have warrantless access to metadata, which would include presumably location of, of phones, uh, I suppose they'd need the 
pull that at, at mass scale. But at the individual level, I think that data is already available to them. Um, Possibly not all the Bluetooth which is, data, which most people don't have Bluetooth on all the time. Yes, well, but what the Bluetooth data gives you basically location and proximity data. And so that you could get from, I, I don't know what the level of accuracy is, but you can get that already from the metadata about the tower tracking of the movements of the phone. I think the important thing is um, that they want it. Yeah, well, I, I, I guess, yeah, I guess, I guess I'm saying I'm not, I, I, I don't know the UK case, uh, but the fact that they want it is indeed telling. <laughs> yeah, you're right. Security intelligence agencies want all of the data. The, uh, but if you want people to install a voluntary app, you've got to also, I, I think, respect the concerns that they might have about that. So if you, it's got to cut into the efficacy of the app if you say, by the way, all this data is going to be shared with law enforcement. And I think that's one of the reasons why in Australia they, they specifically restricted that. But they didn't. My understanding was there was some, in, <laughs> there was some interest in that, but, but uh, they said no because they were worried about um, the uptake of the app. My understanding is that the draft legislation, which will pass without amendments, says that once it's on the server, they can do what they like with it. There's no privacy protections once it's off your phone. So on your phone, it's totally protected, except that it's in the clear, so someone could grab your phone and read it. But once it's on the server, there's no protections in the law. And there's nothing in the legislation about 15 minutes or one and a half metres to be brought down out of the data that was collected every second for 10 metres in every direction around you. Ah. And the uh, data doesn't I, get destroyed. I, I thought the enabling legislation said that the data could only be used for the purpose of contact tracing. That gets superseded I, sorry, by the actual to, legislation to, that passes. I need passes. to check that. So the bill itself, sorry, that one, gets... when the bill passes, that supersedes the enabling legislation. It turns out the data gets destroyed when the government declares the COVID-safe period is over, and that can be whenever right. they want. Or never. Right. Sorry, I don't have the expertise here, but your, sure. I, I, my understanding was that the restriction that the Privacy Commissioner's Office was responsible also for overseeing was that the data would be used only for contact tracing purposes. You're saying that's not the case? Well, I, I'm saying hmm. that the legislation appears to be passing without any amendments. And so all those interests in privacy and things are not in the legislation once it gets to the server. So we don't have open source code for the programs that run on the server. And at the moment, there are no contact tracers in Australia that have access to that data. So there's no contact tracing being done through the app. And we don't know when that mm. will start. And those people aren't don't have software to access it. They don't have procedures or training to access it. So, and none of that's defined in the legislation. Huh. I'll go. I'll go take a look at that because now you've piqued my interest. Because oh, sure. all this, all the coverage that I saw and the legal folks that I was talking to said that the, the legislation restricted the use of this data, to contact tracing, and that if it were used for any other purpose, that would become a cause for action. So, but but I, I don't know. I've got I've got to go take a look. I think with face recognition, my main take on it is that it's a technology that 
is I don't think it's as powerful as it claims to be at the moment, but it has the potential to be quite powerful. And that we're really at the moment now where we need to anticipate its possible uses and abuses before its widespread implementation. And it's going to be super important to have a public conversation about it before the fact, rather than trying to clean up after it's implemented. So it's just one of those technologies that, like so many that we've encountered now, we need to plan ahead for. And I don't think we've done a great job in planning ahead for the, for a lot of these surveillance technologies that are coming out. And I'd, I'd, I'd like to see a widespread public conversation that takes a look at the key issues it's going to raise. Oh, and I appreciate your focusing on that as, as an important topic, because I haven't seen the level of conversation about it that I think we need to be having. So it's really useful that you're contributing to that conversation. Well, Mark, thank you very much. Sure, my pleasure. Good talking to you. That was the final part of Professor Mark Andreevic talking about face recognition software and COVID safe in the pandemic. And that's all from us this week on Diffusion. Are you a scientist, artist, biohacker or maker who'd like to be interviewed about your work? Would your company like to sponsor Diffusion? Send your contributions, opinions, helpful suggestions and donations to science at diffusionradio.com. That's science at diffusionradio.com. Please like the Diffusion Science Radio page on Facebook and rate the show on iTunes. Tell your friends. Follow me on Twitter at Ian Wolfe. The news music was Rhinos Theme by Kevin MacLeod of Incompetech.com. I produce Diffusion, which is broadcast around Australia to 28 stations on the community radio network, including 2RBM in the Blue Mountains of New South Wales, 8CCC in Alice Springs and Tennant Creek, 2MVR in Nambucca Valley, 3MBR in the Mallee Border Districts of Victoria and South Australia, City Park Radio 7LTN in Launceston, Tasmania, and 2XXFM in Canberra. Diffusion is syndicated globally on the National Science Foundation's Science360 internet radio station and also on astronomy.fm. Subscribe to the podcast on the Diffusion website, www.diffusionradio.com. That's www.diffusionradio.com. And check the website for links, photos and videos about this week's show. If you enjoyed the show, you can explore more than a thousand previous episodes archived on diffusionradio.com, where the shows are labelled by keywords so you can focus in on the stories you want to hear. Join my patrons at patreon.com slash diffusionradio. Make a donation through paypal.me slash ianwolf. Support Diffusion by buying from the affiliate links at diffusionradio.com slash support. Subscribe to the Diffusion YouTube channel at youtube.com slash c slash diffusionradio. I'm Ian Wolf. Join us inside your audio device of choice for more science wondering next week on Diffusion Science Radio. Science is fun. It helps you to learn, to know, and to appreciate. When you study science, you may go on field trips. You discover the marvelous interrelationships between all living things. You learn to read the history of the Earth as it is written in rocks and fossils. You find out what makes things tick. Everything from a molecule to a living organism. In the study of science is found the most useful and satisfying knowledge of man. Knowledge of his physical world, its past, its present, and its future. And in your moments of relaxation, now and in the years to come, 
you will find the study of science leading you into fascinating pursuits. Photography. Collecting. Why study science? Study science because you will find in the study of science a richer, more rewarding life.